0: Good morning. If you're missing our young people this morning, I think uh, latest count, we've got 44 at the youth retreat in the mountains. And I know they're having a a wonderful getaway and I'm thankful for them and all of the adults who are making that happen. Um, We are uh, turning our attention to a new study this morning. If you uh, looked in the outline uh, in the bulletin, you, you see the title there. We also have small group Bible studies that are gonna be meeting tonight. I want to ask you this. What makes a great sermon? You ever thought about that? Maybe you think about that every Sunday. Uh, But what makes a great sermon? There's always the jab about keeping it short. Uh, I've often wondered about that one. That'll make a good one. And then there's a sermon that someone else needed to hear. You've heard those kind of comments before. Um, Sometimes I hear people revert back to their upbringing. And they'll talk about when they were young, they remembered uh, a sermon that just was like a verbal spanking. You know, like the preacher was mad. And if you didn't just feel super guilty, then it wasn't a good sermon. Is that what you think of when you think of a a good sermon? Uh, One man said, I felt like crawling out of church. thought, wow. I wonder if you and I were sitting at Jesus' feet at one of the many times when he was teaching, how we would evaluate his sermons. How would we have heard that if we'd never heard before, just to hear him teach? John 1, 14, it's on the screen. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. More and more, I've come to believe that that word and might be the most important part of that grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth. Now, to be clear, there's always been grace, even in the Old Testament. Uh, The book of Genesis barely gets going. I think it's chapter 6 where the Bible tells us Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord But we think mostly about grace being in the New Testament, and there's a reason for that. Because in the Old Testament, the law seemed to be the emphasis. It was all about keeping the law. And even more so, at Jesus' day, the Pharisees had added so many extra rules to the law, it was even harder to keep. Scripture tells us that God gave the law to open our eyes, to help us see that we are sinful, And it does just that. The law has helped make us to feel guilty. Not that we want to crawl out of church, but the law helps us to feel guilty so that we feel and sense and know that we need a Savior. That's the purpose of the law. So a correct understanding of God's law is needed then to fully understand and appreciate God's grace. Look at John 1, 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Everything was pointing to Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that we are not saved by perfect obedience. And that's good news because we'll never perfectly obey. But rather, we're saved by completely trusting that he saves us. Our salvation is in him. And once we understand that, then we are able to walk in a joyful, confident obedience. What I want to do for the next several weeks is just understand, look at times where Jesus would encounter a person, a man, a woman, a situation, and be in that moment grace and truth. All of us need this. And so sometimes when we can just kind of go back a day in the life and watch this happen, we can see how Jesus responded to people and learn about what this grace and truth is about, what it meant for them in that circumstance, and and what does it mean for us in our day and time. Today I want us to look at a sinful woman who came to Jesus for forgiveness. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7. If you want to open your Bibles, you can follow along. They're going to be on the screen as well. Luke sets the stage for the encounter. With Jesus, he he begins in verse thirty six. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, one uh, commentary explained. One author said. In that day when an important teacher would come to your house, it was a common practice to leave the door open in a way so that any passersby, people who got word, they could also come in and, and listen in. In fact, it was sort of a tribute that the person that you had as your guest was of renown and that others would want to come in and kind of take part in that as well. So that's kind of what's going on here. Look at verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, I share that background because we need to understand, why does this woman just kind of walk in the open door? In our minds, that's rude, but in their culture, not so rude. And also, we need to make sure, if you know your Bibles, there were two incidences of a woman who anointed Jesus' feet. This is one of them. The other one is later in his life, and it was Mary, the sister of Lazarus total different story, total different purpose. That was right before Jesus went into Jerusalem to die. So that's not what we're talking about here. This, as we understand, again, as Luke describes her, is a sinful woman. So she was standing behind him, verse 38, at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. What do we know about her? Not much. Luke just calls her a sinner. Now, you probably in your mind think about, because some people conclude that she was a prostitute. But the text doesn't tell us that. We don't know that for certain. Her sin could have been some other issue, some other addiction. We don't know. What we do know from the text, though, is everybody in town knew that she was a sinful woman. That's what we do know from the text. But the text also tells us, She was seeking Jesus. And that's key to this story. When she learned that Jesus was at the home of Simon, she went to where Jesus was. You know, some people, not all, but some people who are trapped in sin, they want to get out. They know that their choices, their lifestyle, what they're doing is not right. And you might even hear them say, if they're a friend of yours or family, I'm not going to do this all my life. One of these days, I'm going to change the race. Or when we have children, then I'm going to stop this. Have you heard that kind of thinking? Some people truly do feel that way. This sinful woman knew that Jesus was calling people to a higher way of living, a better standard, a better quality of life. And deep down, she wanted that. She wanted Jesus. She just needed help getting there. I can't help but think that she had heard Jesus talk before, or at least heard about him. I mean, she knew he was there. She got word, and there she goes to him. She knew something about his compassion, maybe just being approachable. Here's the sinful woman, but she's not put off by Jesus. She goes to where he was. And evidently, though, being in the presence of Jesus at that moment for her was just emotionally overwhelming. Ever been in a situation like that when you're not prepared for it, and next thing you know, you need a tissue and there's nothing in sight? And I've often observed how people cry differently. There are some people who cry and their eyes barely even get moist. And if you're a crier, you look at them and say, Come on, come on, you know, you want something. You know, and there are others who cry, and, and it just flows. It just comes out of the eyes, and it just goes down their cheek, and it's just a big old mess. I think that's what we're reading here. This woman's her tears dripped on Jesus' feet. Now, again, keep in mind, in that day, they were reclined at the table. If you've this before, you know the story here. This posture would place their feet out away from the table. So if she's standing near Jesus, then she's standing right there at his feet. So when her tears drop, they drop on Jesus' feet. And can you imagine her just going, okay, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And so she's quickly drying her, te- her tears with her hair. And again, this is where culture is helpful to understand a little bit of the backstory. The text doesn't say, but we know from that day in time, a woman of, of any kind of refinement of morality would keep her hair up. And so for her hair to be down. This is where some think that maybe she was a prostitute. So that was a little, another context clue here. So this woman is crying, these crocodile tears, dripping them on Jesus, attempting to dry them with her hair, and then she starts kissing Jesus' feet. Do you think this was her plan? Do you think when she goes to Jesus, she thinks, I'm just going to start crying and then embarrass myself and then drip them on his feet, and I know what I'll do. I'll just, I, I, don't, I don't think so. But in that moment, she starts kissing his feet and pours perfume on them. I love the way Jesus responds. But before he gets the chance to respond, Simon jumps in and interrupts quickly to condemn Jesus. Look at verse 39. Now, the Pharisee who has invited him saw this. He said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, Simon being a Pharisee is no small detail in the story either. Pharisees took a vow. To not only know the law inside and out, but to obey the law, to the very law, to the very letter. That That is who they were. Their whole life was devoted to that. They knew not only the law, but all of their additions to the law. So here's the rub in this story. Although the Pharisees were outwardly experts of the law, they knew the law. They were moral people. But deep down, they had a heart problem, an attitude problem. And we see again and again in the Gospels. When we read of the Pharisees, we don't have a positive view of them because we see them often being depicted as arrogant and self-sufficient, self-righteous and judgmental of other people. And you can imagine the people of their day when they would see a Pharisee, they couldn't help but respect them because they were experts in the law of Moses. They knew the law. Their morality, their standards were so much higher than most people. At the same time, they couldn't stand them. Because they sensed that judgmental, self-righteous spirit that they were known for. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus condemns the Pharisees no less than six times, calling them out. The word he uses is hypocrites. They knew the law. They kept the law. But they had no love. They had no grace. Remember, it was the Pharisees who brought that woman caught in the act of adultery and brought her before Jesus because the law said to stone her? But we know that story too. They didn't do that because they were trying to uphold the law. They did that because they were trying to trip Jesus. And they didn't care to exploit this woman. She was just an object, something to use so they could get their way and win their case. And in the process, they just step all over the one Jesus loved. Simon, with all of his knowledge and perfect ways, has this condescending attitude. If Jesus was from God, he would know who she is. He wouldn't be allowing this. But Jesus responds to Simon, notice, with grace and grace. And truth. It is who he is. It's almost as if Jesus can't help himself. When Jesus is responding, he knows how to perfectly give grace and truth. Look at verse forty through forty-two. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answers, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed five hundred denarii, the other fifty. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Now. Be sure to see what Luke is telling us about Jesus here. Jesus not only knew of this woman's reputation. He knew who she was. He knew the talk of the town. He knew everything. He also knew what Simon was thinking. Remember what we just read? Simon thought to himself. Maybe he said it out loud. Maybe he said it to the person next to him. But the the text says he thought to himself. Jesus knows we all have sin. I hope you know that. This woman was guilty of sins of the flesh, but Simon was guilty of sins of the heart, sins of the mind, sins of the spirit. Jesus knew that both of them were spiritually bankrupt. Neither of them were capable of paying back their sin debt. The problem was not in the amount of sin, Or even the type of sin. What we see here, and Luke helps us see as he shares the story here, is awareness. This woman's very much aware of her sin. Simon was not. Look in verse 43. Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Again, back to the context of the story. William Barclay explains that in that day, in that culture, when a host would have guests, especially any guest that was distinguished, there were typical uh, acts of kindness. Now, when we have people in our house, depending on how close we are to them, we'll meet them at the door you know, at least shake their hand or maybe give them a hug and invite them to come in and give them something to drink or to eat, to welcome them. Those are it's just courteous. It's kind of what we do. And that day, the first thing they would do is give the person what they would call a kiss of peace. This is a way of just giving a blessing, especially you would do this for a visiting rabbi. And secondly, the roads were dirty. They wore sandals. And it's just customary that you would allow your guest a moment to clean themselves up in fact, usually they'd have someone there to do that. You, you know that as well. And third, they would take some sweet-smelling incense or a drop of perfume and place it on the guest's head. But Simon, he's the host. He invited Jesus to come. He did none of these things for Jesus. Why? Did Simon want Jesus to have the impression that Jesus was lucky to be invited to Simon's house? Was that it? Did Simon also invite other Pharisees there? Maybe it was just a, a, a time to uh, trick Jesus, trap Jesus as well. Again, notice, Jesus is full of grace, even to Simon, even when he didn't deserve it. Jesus didn't storm out because he wasn't greeted in the proper way. He doesn't stand over in the corner with his arms folded mad because no one was there to help him wash his feet. Not at all. He reclined at the table and ate. He looked over that social injustice. And then Simon displays disgust for the sinful woman and questions Jesus' authority. Grace stops. Truth comes in. Look what happens here. Verse 45 through 47. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. It may be you, maybe somebody you know, but someone who's come from a very checkered past, very dark background, when they finally realize salvation in Jesus, their joy is, just cannot be contained, and sometimes their emotion is over the top. Especially compared to those of us maybe who grew up in a a, a Christian home and have been in church all of our lives not fully appreciative of the extent of our own sin debt. It happens. Look at verse 48. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. To Simon, he saw this sinful woman, maybe a prostitute, who was a nuisance. Jesus saw a soul in need of love and grace and forgiveness. Isn't Jesus wonderful? Do you ever sing a song or just read a scripture and just think, Jesus is so good. Don't you wish you could see people like Jesus sees people and that you could respond to people the way Jesus responded to people? Oh, I'm not there yet, but I want to be. Don't you? More and more like him. We know this story. But here's what I want to do. I want us to look at this story. that's somewhat familiar to us. And I want us to see and learn some very practical lessons about what it means that Jesus is full of grace and truth. And especially in the context of this story, what forgiveness looks like. So that's going to be our lesson. If you've got your outline, you see the blanks there. They're going to be on the screen. And we're going to talk about this more extensively in our small groups tonight. But let's learn. Just like this woman, the first step is this. You go to where Jesus is. When you are convicted of sin, you go to where Jesus is. Instead of running away, you go toward him. Do you think this woman felt out of place at the house of a Pharisee? I wonder if that's the first time she'd ever just made her way in to a house like that. Everybody knew she was a sinful woman. Probably not her customary place to be. Did anyone try to stop her? Can you imagine that? Oh, oh, Wait who are you? You think you can go in? The text doesn't say that, but I can imagine at least getting that kind of look. Like, who are you, and why do you think you're allowed to come in? But she went in anyway. She went to where Jesus was. When you know you have sinned, And you do. But when you have this awareness that that we see here in this woman, you go to the place where Jesus is. Now, that needs to be said because that's not what you're going to feel like doing. When you are convicted of sin, you don't want to go to church. You don't want to read your Bible. You don't want to read a a book about the Bible. You don't want to listen to Christian music on the radio. You don't. It's probably not a fair comparison but in my mind it's not unlike physical therapy after you've had surgery you know after you've had surgery what do you want to do lie in bed you want to sit in the chair that's what you want to do but with physical therapy you know you got to get your body moving and it's good for you so the first step in healing spiritually is you get up and you go to where Jesus is The prodigal son. You remember that story? So wounded, so hurt, so desperate in the far country. As Jesus told the story, he explained he came to himself, started thinking clearly. And what does he say? I'm going to go back to my father. That's where the healing is. Here's what's so amazing about Jesus. Jesus knows all about your sin, all of it. And he invites you to come. That's who he is. Look on the screen, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. You know these words. Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is so willing. Jesus is so eager. So if you're ever convicted and you want to know what's step number one, you go to Jesus. Because his arms are wide open. And secondly, learn for the woman. Allow yourself to be overwhelmed by his incredible love. Simon missed that. Oh, that was good, wasn't it? Simon missed that. Totally. But in that moment, she was just so overwhelmed and the tears flowed. See, sometimes when we sin, especially when it's been years of sin or that besetting sin, as the Bible calls it, we begin to doubt and question, does God still love me? Is there any hope for me, even though I've deliberately disobeyed him? Mark this verse down. Write it down. If, if you're one of those that you like to take the back of your Bible and those little pages and write down key verses, I hope Romans 5.8 is already down there in your list, but if not, write it today. Because it is so key. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is not after you've been convicted of sin. This is not after you've promised you'll never sin again. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you want to know how much God loves you, you look at Jesus dying on the cross. That's how much he loves you. since Jesus is God in the flesh, He is able to look ahead in the future to the day you were born and even more so to the day you die and see anything and everything you've done, all of your sin debt, all of it, and He willingly took it upon Himself. That's the story of Scripture. And on the cross, He says, I love you this much. That's who He is. That's what He did. And it's not just that God loves you. He wants you to know how much He loves you. This is not a secret. This is something, because he knows if you knew it, then you would come to him. Before your small group Bible study tonight, I want to encourage you to read in Ephesians chapter 3. Just go look at up. Read the whole chapter. But the last part of there is Paul's prayer. And he's just desperately praying, I wish, I wish you could know the, the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of God's love. Because if you knew that, then you would get this in spite of your sin, Jesus is saying, come to me. Number three, just like this woman, genuinely repent of your sin. This woman was sincerely sorry for whatever she had done. You know, if she was a prostitute carrying this this bottle of perfume, that would be a tool of her trade, and commentaries will explain with with her just offering all of that as if she's saying, I'm not going to need this, Anymore. Do you think repentance is missing more and more from our conversations? I've come to believe that. We don't talk about repentance very much. Have you heard someone say, you know, the Lord loves you in spite of your sin. We're all God's children. The church is not a hotel for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. Everyone is welcome. You know what I say to that? Yes. Yes. All of that is true. But Jesus also said, if you don't repent, you will perish. If you love me, keep my commandments. I think repentance involves three words. The first word is conviction. There's no blanks on your outline, but you might have write this down. Conviction. You are convicted that you are wrong. I'm not a victim of my circumstances. I'm not blaming my parents. I am a sinner. And I know it. It's conviction. The second word is contrition. You, you become contrite. You are truly sorry for what you've done. Not that you've been caught. Not that you're embarrassed. Yes, you are embarrassed because it's embarrassing. But you're sorry because you've wounded the heart of God and you've hurt people in your life. It breaks your heart. And the third word is change. That's what the word repent means. It means to turn. It means to change. I turn from my rebellious ways and begin to walk in obedience. No matter how far gone I may think I am, repentance means I turn back and I turn back to God. God. 2 Corinthians 17, I think, puts a light on this. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. that Godly sorrow is what turns us around. That's how you know it's godly sorrow, because you turn, you change. Very famous song, "You know it all. Charlotte Elliott wrote the words, "Just as I am." You know that song? Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou bidst me come to me, O Lamb of God, I come. What a beautiful sentiment. What a biblical sentiment. That is how God takes us, just as we are. But maybe you heard of Peter Marshall's prayer before the U.S. Senate. He said, Lord, we thank you that we can come to you just as we are, but remind us that we dare not leave as we came. See, more than Elliot or Marshall, what does God say? What does God think about this? When you think about this whole idea of repenting, what is God's mind? What's his view? Look at Isaiah 66, verse 2. This is God speaking. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's was his woman. That's what she was. Here's a fourth lesson we learn from her. Trust in God's amazing grace. We love to sing about amazing grace because it's a wonderful song. It's the most wonderful concept. Jesus said to her, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He didn't say your broken spirit has saved you. He didn't say your acts here in front of everyone saved you. He didn't say, if you promise to never sin again, I will save you. Jesus freely granted her forgiveness by his grace because she believed that he was able to save. Acts 15 says, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. One commentary that I was reading reminded me of the Dennis the Menace cartoon. Remember Dennis the Menace Jim said he was old. I'm just right there almost as old as Jim. (laughs) If you don't know Dennis the Menace, he was a rounder, always up to mischief. That's the name. But he said this to his friend Joey. Mrs. Wilson gives us cookies because she's nice, not because we're nice. That's God, isn't it? God gives us grace because he's good, not because we're good. Look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. God wants you to know this. God wants you to believe this. Do you believe this? To be true, let me maybe illustrate it like this. What if I were to say, "Hey, there's a great concert coming to the Mule House, and I got tickets. I want you to go with me." And you say "Man, that'd be great." And you say "How much are they?" I said, "Nope, nope, already bought them." You know, no, no, I want, I want to pay for. Them. I said, "No, it's, it's my gift. I want you to be my friend. Could come with me." And you go, "Okay, I'll do that." And then a week later, we, we meet again talking. You can, hey, I'm looking forward to that concert. He goes, I really want to pay my own way. And how much are the tickets? I said, no, no, already bought them, got them. This, it's going to be a joy. I'm just glad you're going with me. We're going to be together. It's going to be a great concert. Like, okay, okay, I'll do it. And then just right before the date of the concert, you, you hear through the talk that, that the concert is sold out. You're thinking, oh, I don't have my ticket yet. And so you text me and go, hey, what about those tickets? Can I buy my ticket? At this point, what am I supposed to think about you? I'm irritated. I'm frustrated. Three times I told you, I bought this ticket. I want you to go with me. And you're not listening or believing. Folks, when you repeatedly go to God for a sin that you committed years ago and have already asked God to forgiveness, and you keep bringing it back up, saying, Forgive me, and you bring it back up, saying, Forgive me, and you bring it back up, saying, Forgive me, what's God supposed to think about that? Is He weary? Is He frustrated? Is He thinking, You don't believe that I've buried your sins at the bottom of the sea? That's what the Bible says. Is it that you don't believe that I don't remember them anymore? Sometimes people will say, defending this way of thinking, well, you know, it's hard to forgive yourself. Is that what it is? Because I'm not convinced. The Bible never talks about forgiving yourself, does it? I can't think of a verse at all. It's about God forgiving you. And if you believe, if you take God at His word, that when you've asked for His forgiveness and He's forgiven, they're gone. And instead, when, when you're reminded of that, instead of thinking this is the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin, maybe it's Satan trying to trip you up and cause you doubt. So instead, the next time you remember about your sin, and you should, because God, He may remember them norm, we do. We remember. What do you do with that? Thank God for His grace. God, that was me, but no more. Thank you for your blood that washes me clean. God, help me every day to live redeemed. God, give me your eyes and your heart. When I see other people, I'll not be self-righteous and think I'm better. I realize they need Jesus like I need Jesus. And help me share the good news with them. He promises in His Word, 1 John 1-7, If you confess your sin, I'll be faithful and just and forgive you of your sin and cleanse you with all of unrighteousness. Here's the last thing we'll learn from this story. Live like it. Live as though you're forgiven. If you are God's child, if your sin debt has been paid... If you have a a, a sinful past and now all that has been washed away, what next? Live as though you're forgiven. You live victoriously. Jesus said to the woman, now you go in peace. He wanted her to, to have the assurance, his assurance that she was forgiven. He didn't do that because Luke tells us that she lived a perfect life from that day forward. Because Luke doesn't share that detail. Because no one lives a perfect life. What Jesus calls us to is a life that's continually moving in the right direction toward Him. The whole idea of repentance is you just turn around. Where are you? You're far from God, but you're at least pointed to God. Do you have a, a, more to accomplish? Grow? Mature? Absolutely. Absolutely. But you're pointed in the right direction, a life that is confident that God will keep his promises. Now, again, i got to add a word of caution here, because grace is one of those wonderful things that can be exploited. This woman was to go in peace, but she was not to go back to her former way of life. Look at Romans 6, 1 through 4, very quickly. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that we all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. Paul goes on to talk about being crucified with Christ, no longer being slaves to sin. We're set free by Jesus. God does not expect perfection, but he does expect a sincere heart of obedience. That you've turned toward him and you're putting one step in front of the other. And he wants you to be confident that you're forgiven. And that you can live victoriously. And at every chance you get, opportunity you make, you're pointing to Jesus as your Savior. When Jesus told her to go in peace, that doesn't mean to have constant doubt about your forgiveness. But how many Christians wonder, am I really saved? When Jesus comes back, am I going to heaven? Look at 1 John 5.13. John said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. Isn't Jesus wonderful? Full of grace and truth? There are times where the Holy Spirit is going to speak to you and convict you because you need the truth and there's times where you're going to be overwhelmed with God's grace because you're going to need his loving arm around you to say you are mine and I've got you Jesus is full of grace and truth we don't know anymore about this woman this is not a story she really existed but we can learn go to where Jesus is Be overwhelmed by his incredible love. Genuinely repent of your sins. Trust in his amazing grace. And then live like it. Have you, as Jesus said, repented? Have you, as Paul wrote, been baptized into Christ? Are you ready to go in peace? Walk a newness of life? Are you convinced that you have eternal life? Our invitation song is to encourage you. Say yes to Jesus if you need baptism. If you need his assurance, if we can pray for you, whatever you need, won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage